You are listening to Why Can't We Have It All, a podcast focused on exploring the missing pieces in our healthcare system. This podcast is sponsored by Bowtie Medical, an innovative healthcare company that offers integrated virtual healthcare designed to keep you in control of your health and what you spend on it while lowering the cost of healthcare for you. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Why Can't We Have It All? I'm your host, Dr. Danish Gary. As you know, the main aim of this podcast series is to identify and explore the missing pieces in our healthcare system and to find out how we can have a well-balanced, high-quality, and affordable healthcare system here in the U.S. In this session, we will explore the history and evolution of why and how employers became the largest buyers of health insurance in the U.S. and how that has contributed to this healthcare becoming the most expensive one in the world. My co-host today is Zal, our producer, who is an average consumer of healthcare. Welcome to the show, Zal. Thank you for having me. So, Zal, could you tell me who pays for your groceries, your rent, or your car gas, or other expenses? Uh, yeah, and that would be myself. Um, I have a job that pays me, and I use my own money and pay for those needs, my groceries, my rent, my gas, all those things. Awesome. Well, that is very correct. The economists say that the essential needs of human beings in a developed society are food, shelter, housing, transportation, education, and healthcare. Satisfaction of those needs allow an individual to participate in the economic activities of the society and to contribute to its growth and prosperity. In a free society such as ours, most of those needs are not purchased or given to us directly by our employers. The expectation is that an adult like you uh, gets a job, earns a wage, and then pays uh, for your needs, food, housing, transportation, education, etc. If for whatever reason the wages of that individual is not enough, he or she may receive support for or, or subsidies uh, from his or her family, the federal or local governments, or charity organizations. The model by which the government pays for majority of a person's needs is labeled socialism and was partially practiced and failed in the former communist states. However, during the past 70 years uh, after World War II, Payments for the hospitalization and the health care of an individual in this society was separated from other essential needs and is paid largely by our employers or the federal government. The history of how employers became the largest purchasers of health insurance in the United States is both intriguing and revealing. Let me review some with you. The process began in the period between the World War I and World War II and coincided with the, when the hospitals were gaining increasing recognition as places where advances in antiseptic techniques, general anesthesia, nursing, and other areas was allowing doctors to go there in the hospitals and diagnose or treat or do surgery for diseases that was affecting the citizens at a much higher frequency uh, than before World War One. Therefore, the hospitals started uh, to become a part of the fabric of the modern society in early decades of 20th century. 
However, the cost of hospitalization was above the affordability of an average person or a family. As we discussed in an earlier podcast, in the 1930s, the Baylor Hospital of Dallas uh, pioneered a 50 cents per month payment by a person for the privilege of staying in the hospital for 20 days a year. That innovation later became the basis for health insurance, paying for hospitalizations, and the majority of expensive healthcare services, uh, later including, uh, including doctor's fees. So the question was brewing in the societies, uh, in the developing societies, who should be paying for hospitalization and or healthcare? In answer to that question, and around the time of World War II uh, or thereafter, two paths for solutions were being developed. On one path, the Western European countries, uh, perhaps influenced by the Eastern European competition and uh, its leader, Soviet Union, who were pursuing the utopia of socialism, chose to consider the purchase of health insurance as a duty of their country's government. Therefore, most European countries adopted a model called the Bismarck model, uh, which is named after the former German chancellor, Otto von Bismarck. Under the Bismarck model and its variation, uh, governments uh, began collecting taxes for the purpose of paying for health care needs of their citizens, and that path became the single-payer system. Some European governments decided not only uh, to become the single-payer, also become the single-provider. For example, in England, whose government took over the control of all the hospitals during the World War II, continued to own and operate all the hospitals and employed the British doctors and created a national health system, or NHS, after the war. Whereas other European countries, uh, Canada and Taiwan included, adopted a single payer with multiple providers. These governments, through the collection of taxes designated for healthcare, pay for the cost of healthcare, and the private government and charity hospitals provide care at prices that are dictated or negotiated by the governments. Payment for doctors' uh, services later became a part of that coverage. However, our parents and policymakers in those years, uh, including our doctors and hospitals, did not like that path. And both American uh, medical associations and the American hospital associations helped to defeat uh, President Truman's proposal in 1949 to create a single-payer system in the U.S. So the single-payer system is the first path we're talking about? Correct. Right. So this second path... Um I guess, could you explain a little bit more on that or what happened in the U.S. after the president was defeated on creating a single-payer system? Sure. To understand that, let me explain one more point. In another development during the World War II, our federal government had imposed a wage freeze to avoid losing skilled workers to corporations or the companies uh, which were not involved in the military-industrial production. It's called the Wage Freeze Act. However, those corporations found they could evade the wage freeze by offering other benefits, such as pension plans and, most importantly, purchase of health insurance for their employees. The federal agency that was named Price Administration 
uh, that was administering the wage freeze ruled that the offer of health care insurance was not a violation of the freeze. And the Internal Revenue Services, the IRS, went along with that and ruled that the employer purchased health insurance was not a taxable income to the employees. This dramatic and historical development rapidly expanded employer-sponsored insurance after 1950s to where today nearly 200 million, a little less than that, Americans get health insurance through their employers. And this has created a $1 trillion private healthcare insurance industry. A trickle-down of President Truman's proposal later evolved uh, to cover the elderly, poor, and disabled in America and created the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, uh, which was uh, signed into law by President Johnson in 1965. With these developments, the second path established a multiple-payer uh, system in the U.S., Therefore, the two largest purchasers of health insurance in the U.S. were born. The employers who purchased health insurance for nearly, again, 200 million uh, working Americans, and the federal government who pay for the health insurance of the elderly, poor, and disabled through Medicare and Medicaid programs for a cost of nearly $1 trillion uh, from the taxpayer's uh, pocket. Okay, so now I understand that one of these paths turned into a single-payer system and the other is a multi-payer system. What are some of the main differences between these two? Perhaps the biggest difference is really the total spent. In a single-payer system, the federal government determines how much overall is going to be paid and goes down to the prices of each service, whereas in the multiple-payer system, the total spent is... Uh, determined by the free market forces. So we Americans chose to adopt a multiple-payer and multiple-provider system that relies on free market forces to provide unlimited access to healthcare services and is paid for mostly by our employers and the federal government. The system potentially avoids uh, the rationing of care that is largely attributed to single-payer system, the first path, and relies on free market forces to balance the offering of hospitals and doctors with their cost. But the evidence points to the contrary. The system that was chosen by our past generation has evolved into the most expensive healthcare system in the world. We have spent three to 500% more than European countries and our health outcomes rank 30th and 40th in the world, to the point that the Europeans and Canadians, they ridicule our uh, system for its high prices and uh, unaffordability. Right. Wow. So what you're saying is the American system has become the most expensive healthcare system in the world and uh, not corresponding with the great outcomes. Um, I guess since I'm the producer of this show and staying on topic, um, could I ask what is missing from our healthcare system um, that has prevented us from having a free market and creating a high quality, efficient, affordable system? Well, let's examine the element of our system through the lens of a free market scope and explore what is missing in order for this system to unleash the full potential of a free market model. 
The birth of the employer and government-sponsored insurance effectively placed employers as the buyers of health insurance and healthcare services for most Americans and the federal government for the elderly. This model is created a model called a third-party payer system. This system could work if it was truly an insurance, meaning that it would cover expenses for major catastrophic events, as it is in the case with our car insurance and house insurance, etc. We know we are responsible for the maintenance of our cars and our houses, and that the insurance and the premiums we pay for that would cover catastrophic events, such as major accidents, God forbid, and fires, and etc. However, the current health insurance has evolved into a method of payment for all healthcare services, maintenance and non-maintenance or catastrophic, regardless of whether these are, again, maintenance or major issues. This healthcare uh, insurance pays for Viagra for half of my neighbors in my neighborhood. The major negative effect of a third-party payer system is that someone else, other than the consumer, you and I, individuals who use the services of the healthcare and should negotiate prices, benefit packages, or coverage and all other details, uh, such as you know which doctor we can go or not, which hospitals we can go or not, the prices that are paid to those hospitals and doctors, irrespective of the quality of their services and our opinion of those services, their customer service we receive, and all other third-party problems that result when the buyer and the seller are not directly involved in negotiating the quality versus price of a rendered service or a product. So this is the most and first important violation of a free market uh, dynamic, where a third party, other than the consumer of a service, is in control of the payment, its methodology, and the ability to compare and reward the seller, the providers, based on his or her quality of care or outcomes. This is as if we all had to accept the terms and conditions and amounts of the payments for our purchases of food, housing, and cars from our employers or the federal government. In your case, all is like if your employer tells you which grocery store go and buy your food or which car you should drive or which car you shouldn't be driving. So in our current system that is supposed to resemble a free market, I, as the patient or consumer, still never fully take the role of a customer. That is correct. So the loss of control from our being consumers instead of customers of healthcare service is the most fundamental deviation from a free market principle in the American healthcare system. This loss of control has led to several uh, complications or consequences. Would you be interested in hearing some examples? Yes, of course. So first and the Foremost, our lack of awareness of the outrageous charges for healthcare services and lack of our willingness or ability to bargain for better prices or better deals, which are essential components of a fair, a fair transaction in a free market uh, economy, are not implemented by us because we act as almost clueless consumers and not savvy customers. For example, 
When we go to receive our needs in a hospital or other healthcare facilities, laboratory, imaging, x-ray, or outpatient facilities, or what have you, the last thing that we ask or comes to our mind to ask is the price of those services. When we enter to any of those facilities, we gladly sign on a blank sheet of paper committing ourselves and our family's financial resources to whatever unknown prices or charges those facilities are going to impose on us, thinking or being deluded into assuming that somehow our commitment to pay those prices will be taken care of by someone else, a third party. We all assume that uh, insurance companies or federal government, if we have Medicare, will pay all those expenses, despite the evidence that shows that medical expenses are the number one cause of personal bankruptcies in the United States, meaning at the end, we are the one who is responsible for those costs and those expenses. Would any of us ever sign a piece of paper saying that we will pay whatever the unspecified price of a house or a car we are buying from a seller? Would you do that at all? Not at all. So why do we do that for healthcare services that often are more expensive than a car or a house? The second and equally dramatic complication of this loss of control is increasing evidence that indicates that providers, hospitals, have used our lack of control and awareness, and they provide, render much unnecessary healthcare services that often do not lead to beneficial health outcomes for us. They just do it because they get paid for it. And many times, as a matter of fact, damages our health and our pocketbooks at the same time. The Dartmouth Institute has led their research showing that between 30 to 50% of healthcare services rendered uh, by the hospital-controlled delivery system are unnecessary and wasteful. We should review this topic in detail in other sessions of this podcast. Right. Um, so again, in pursuit of goals of this podcast, um, do you think that this system can be fixed? Um, we have, can we have it all? A free market-based uh, healthcare system that is not ration care, um, it is efficient, meaning the prices and the quality go hand in hand, and the customer is happy and healthy overall? Fortunately for us, the answer is yes. As a reform in 1970s uh, fixed the structure of pension plans for most Americans in a similar fashion. A quick review of history of employer-sponsored uh, services or benefits indicate that uh, there was a similar situation with the other parts of the benefits, with the American Retirement and Pension Funds after World War II. Um, following a series of failures among American corporations in providing the promised pensions to Americans and a series of investigations carried out by Congress uh, that showed uh, millions of Americans uh, the consequence of poorly funded pension plans and bad investment uh, by the corporations. In the following years, Congress held a series of public hearings on pension issues, and public support for pension reform grew significantly, uh, which led to the Employee Retirement and Income Security Act, or ERISA, 
1974 and signed into law by President Gerald Ford on September 2nd, 1974 on the Labor Day. Uh, so this law effectively transformed the pension plans for the majority of working Americans from defined benefit plans, meaning that employers negotiated, funded, and operated the pension plans for their employees to defined contribution plans, where funds that used to be placed in the pension funds controlled by the employers now would be contributed to individual retirement accounts, IRAs, that are owned, directed, and invested by the employees themselves. So are you implying that the same thing could happen with healthcare? Yes, I am. So it seems that the time has arrived for the employer-sponsored insurance to undergo the similar reform. Whether the transformation of the current system where employers negotiate and buy our health insurance plans from the insurance companies uh, to define contribution plans where the employers would uh, basically put the funds into our health saving accounts or health reimbursement accounts, they're pretty much the same, similar to IRAs, similar to individual retirement accounts. Those accounts then could be controlled and are controlled and directed by us individuals and would allow us to purchase our health care insurance and replace our uh, lost position as the customer of the healthcare uh, market. So like buying cars or houses, now we are empowered customers and we can go and buy the type of health insurance we deem fit for our families' uh, needs and ourselves, uh, what kind of coverage we wanna have depending on what the stage of life we are in. We have children, we don't have children. And frankly, no other changes need to be made to the current system. The funds transferred to our HSAs, health saving accounts or HRAs, would they still be tax deductible for employers, so they would enjoy that part of it, and it would not be taxable to us. The key component of this reform is that we, as consumers of healthcare services, would regain our position as customers of the healthcare market. As we start to learn how much we are paying for our health insurance or healthcare services, such as lab tests, imaging surgeries, etc. Then we become savvier customers of healthcare. We could save the funds in our HSAs and transfer our savings to our children or grandchildren. Wow, and that sounds like something that could be achieved moderately easily. Um, does that sound correct? Uh, yes. The good news is that reform actually may have been started by President Trump. Executive Order 13813 established the regulations for offering individual coverage health reimbursement accounts, uh, we call it ICRA, which allows businesses the option to offer employees a monthly allowance of tax-free money to buy the health insurance that fits their unique needs. Along with provisions for out-of-pocket health expenses, this ICRA, also directly addresses the Affordable Care Act, the Obamacare Compliance, for employers uh, with more than 50 employees. That executive order is perhaps the first and most important step toward the transformation of defined benefits to defined contribution plans in the employer-sponsored insurance market. 
The Congressional Budget Office predicts that close to about a million small employers would switch to this method of sponsoring the health insurance of their employees uh, within the next three years. So this method you're explaining is instead of the employer going out and purchasing insurance for an employee, instead he would give the money to the employee like myself to go out and have the option to decide on my own plan. Yes, exactly. This transition would likely unleash more free market forces to allow the consumer employee to become a customer of healthcare and purchase the best product for covering themselves and their families by comparing the quality and benefits of offered packages in the private or public markets. So this transformation will position the newly empowered customer of healthcare, the individual employee, you and I, in the bargaining position against the providers of healthcare services, hospital, labs, imaging facilities, and doctors, who now have to compete for the attention and money of the customer based on their quality of services or even the outcome of their procedures or services, customer service, and most importantly, the price tag of their services. Isn't that fantastic? Isn't that what a free market should be delivering and not a government-controlled or dictated pricing scheme? This transformation needs to take further steps, though, until and when most of the employers who purchase health insurance for, again, nearly 200 million Americans have transformed to a defined contribution plan methods of paying for their employees' health insurance. If this process is completed without political disruption, uh, we are in an election year, it would also relieve employers from a 70-year-old burden that they have been carrying on that was placed on them accidentally. So the employers and their companies now could focus on their core competencies of their businesses and reduce their cost of paying for expensive human resource managers uh, of employees' benefits. The reality is that the understanding of the complexities of healthcare and the healthcare market is not the core competency of most companies, most employers, and they're often tricked into purchasing packages that perhaps benefits the brokers and the insurance companies more than the employers or their employees. Could you imagine what kind of burden employers would have if they had to negotiate pricing packages for our cars and our houses and so on? This reform would infuse the efficiencies expected from a free market into the American healthcare system and thereby, once and for all, it may offer the path toward the high quality, efficient, affordable, and not rationed healthcare system that our World War II generation uh, would want for us and our children. Wow. I mean, it seems that the reform has begun and just needs to go faster and get um, be more progressively expanded so the larger employer can join the transformation. Exactly. Uh, we would uh, hopefully review uh, the updates to the current evolution of this reform in other sessions as we go along. Right. Well, thank you for uh, joining me today, Zal, as my co-host. I hope uh, you found this session interesting. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I have. Well, thank you all for listening to this episode of Why Can't We Have It All? I'm your host, Dr. Donish Gary. 
Until the next time, stay safe and be well. You've been listening to Why Can't We Have It All? The Missing Pieces in Our Healthcare. This podcast is brought to you by Bowtie Medical. Visit us on the web at www.wcwha.com, as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and send all your questions and comments to info at wcwha.com. Again, that's info at wcwha.com.